Thank you for listening to the podcast of Antioch Church, a Christian community in Bend, Oregon, being formed by the story of a God who is making all things new, including us. You can learn more at antiochchurch.org. Thanks for listening. Ah, well, good morning, Antioch. So good to be with you today. Um, kind of reminds me of a music video from the 80s, 99 Luftballons. Um, glad to see a few of us wearing red today. I, I, how many of you don't have red in your wardrobe at all? Yeah, I think there's a lot of people who don't have red. You know, there's something about the color red that just shouts, here I am. And uh, uh, one of the things I love about little kids is they're not afraid to say, here I am. Um, and uh, I think that's something we lose along the way. I, I remember when I started to lose that. Um, I think I was in fifth or sixth grade. And um, Ann Walatarski, who I had a crush on, my very first one, in Sunday school class, turned around and said, you don't have to answer all the questions. And I'd never raised my hand in Sunday school after that. Um, Anne gave me my first of many lessons in self-consciousness, something that junior high uh, completed in its education. Um, And what what cemented it for me was um, the end of the year school awards. Um, The year before, I had paid attention to all of the awards that they had given out. And I thought, I'm going to try to win a bunch of those. And I made the mistake of winning all of them, um, or at least all that I could. Um, I won the spelling bee. I was, was on all the sports teams. Uh, I was in drama. I, I even came to school sick to win the perfect attendance award. So when, when this awards ceremony happened, um, most of my friends didn't get anything, and, and other kids got maybe two or three if they did really well. I got 11. And after about the fourth or fifth, I realized the mistake I'd made. Because they kept calling me up, and I started noticing people whispering and laughing, and I thought, oh my gosh, what have I done? I was horrified. So much so that in high school, I did such a good hiding from attention that I came in second place for most shy. Um, my senior year. I also came in second place for nicest hair. <laughs> so go figure with that one. Um, all that to say, um, there's a little bit of middle school kids still inside of me feeling a little bit shy because I'm going to use my version of Psalm 104 um, today. And I, I feel, I, I'm glad that Antiochers, that's what we call ourselves, right? Yeah. Um, that, that a bunch of you like and use um, everyday psalms, but I, again, I do feel a little bit shy about using my own thing, but enough of my neurosis. Let's, let's get on with the text. Psalm 104 is one of my all-time favorite passages in the scriptures. Uh, it's one of our biggest psalms, um, and I remember the moment that it became uh, one of my favorites. I had just started um, graduate school up in Canada, and um, a group of us from Regent College had hiked up Grouse Mountain, and um, 
house sound and the Gulf Islands were out in, in all their glory in front of us. And uh, one of my professors, Lauren Wilkinson, read the psalm aloud and my soul just shouted out loud inside of me. Um, my body, my mind, my faith, my world just resonated with these ancient words and they still do. Psalm 104 is, is a poetic response to the first 35 verses of the Bible. The, the first six, or the six days of creation in Genesis 1 and the seven day, seventh day of rest in Genesis 2, 1 to 4a, which just kind of begs the question of who was it who divided the chapters and verses of the Bible that they couldn't even keep the creation week together? Um, oh well. I'm gonna refer to these 35 verses as Genesis 1 just for simplicity's sake. So what Genesis 1 um, poetically represents as happening in the past, Psalm 104 represents as our current reality. And it takes all kinds of artistic freedoms in its reflections on Genesis 1 as it does so, and I, I really love that. Um, it's, it's, it's a cool thing to look at one part of the scripture as it reads another part of the scripture. And so we, we have that right here with Psalm 104 looking back, reflecting on reading Genesis 1, and I love how it does it. There's this core faithfulness to Genesis 1 all the way through Psalm 104, but there's also this playfulness and this improvisation that goes on as it reflects on it. The, the best kind of Bible reading does what I call, has what I call a, a playful faithfulness. Say that 10 times fast, playful faithfulness. It's not a regimented literalism that leads to legalism, but it's also not this loosey-goosey spirituality that's all about me and my wants and needs and feelings on the other side. A playful faithfulness takes God and the scriptures seriously, but, and then once it's done that, it takes me seriously within this context of God and the scriptures which is something that the, my self-conscious middle school self could have used a lot of. Uh, we're all kind of re recovering from our middle school experiences, aren't we? I think, think we, we spend the rest of our lives kind of undoing some of the decisions we made back then. What fascinates me about Psalm 104 is that its goals are different from Genesis 1, uh, which makes sense, right, because we already have Genesis 1. And Genesis 1 has these, this really tight uh, poetic literary structure. You know, each of the days starts with, and God said, and, and then you, you have, um, it, um, and it was so, and God saw that it was good, and there was morning and evening. Psalm 104 just kind of ditches all of that, um, and it's okay. Uh, it's, it's faithful to it, but it's different from it. Um, and while we're talking about Genesis 1, Genesis 1 is not a scientific text and never intended to be and so should not be read as such. Um, science has the how question in mind and that's not within the framework of what Genesis 1 is interested in. Genesis 1 is a theological text which its goal is to, to shape God's people spiritually. Um, and so it, it has more the why question 
Why did God do this? Not the how, but the why. So different questions, different answers. Psalm 104 has a completely different thing than either science or Genesis 1. Um, leaves the how, leaves all of the W's beside other than one extra W, which I'll call the wow. Psalm 104 is interested in wonder, looks at, the, at creation through the eyes of wonder. Just a, a few more things before we, we jump into the text. Um, it goes through, through the seven days of creation Genesis 1, but it doesn't mention the days themselves. That, that was something that the, the earliest readers would have picked up and seen. When I did my version, I added those in, in brackets, so that you could understand that I've added those in. But I felt we needed just a little bit of help seeing um, that in there. Remember, prayerful, uh, playful faithfulness. Okay. So... Um, Psalm 104. Praise wells up from the depths of my soul, and Yahweh's greatness deserves every bit of it. What we call splendor and majesty are merely the clothes he wears. He is greater still. And then the psalmist does something really gutsy. We, we wouldn't notice it as gutsy, but again, the original readers would have noticed it as gutsy. Um, day one, sunlight is the hat Yahweh places on his head. He inhabits the skies above us, surfing the clouds, riding the wind. Storm winds breathe his truth. Lightning speeds to run his errands. Did you get it? And I'm not referring to riders on the storm by the doors, um, though I'm sure Jim Morrison stole it from here. The psalmist refers to Yahweh as the wind rider. That may not seem like a big deal, but that would have been shocking for the original audience who knew that um, the Canaanite god Baal or Baal was known as the wind rider. The Old Testament stories are full of the people of God abandoning him and worshiping Baal instead. So why does the poet do this? We would now call this cultural appropriation. The early church would have called this Christus Victor, Christ the Victor. Our Lord is taking ownership of his creation in this psalm. The followers of Baal may think that he's the wind rider, but he's not. Yahweh is the true wind rider. All of creation is God's creation. And likewise, all truth is God's truth. An essential part of the reconciliation of all things is restoring kingship to the true king. Now, there, there are those who fear environmentalism or racial justice or other things because they fear the people who are associated with them. In fact, I think that's generally what people fear most is the people associated with them. But that's silly, right? Because this is God's earth, so why wouldn't we take care of it? And these are God's people of all sorts. Why wouldn't we love them? When God is king, the pieces come back together. So when the poet gets to day two, he does a fascinating thing. He blends the creation story with the flood story. 
Listen, day two. He built the earth to last. It's no fragile China doll. You submerged it in the flood. Massive mountains became tiny islands. But at a word from you, the water ran away. Your thunder sent it speeding a hasty retreat. You drew a line in the sandy beach and said, don't cross. The flood story in Genesis 6 to 9 is intentionally written as an uncreation story that becomes a recreation story. So in Genesis 1, the, the waters are separated to be above and below. And in Genesis, Genesis 6, they crash in. And this safe sanctuary that God has made um, gets covered in water. So the poet here in Psalm 104 just is blending the two of these just really beautifully. So I, I have to admit, I'm a bit of a Bible geek. So this, this kind of stuff... I just love this stuff. I could, could go on and on. And there's so much in this poem that I, I'd love to spend time with. And you can ask me about it at another time because I just don't have the, the time here. But, but one of the things that we'll see in this next section is, is the poet just beautifully, very seamlessly takes these chaotic waters of the flood and turns them into the life-giving waters that irrigate the earth. So he continues... You pointed, and the waters went, flowing down mountain streams, gathering into lakes and seas. Your, your rivers water the trees, giving perches both lofty and low to birds of all types. And you may not have noticed it in, in, some, in these sections before, but um, the poet, who's unnamed, very seamlessly shifts back and forth between referring to God more personally and prayerfully as you and more uh, objectively and worshipfully as he. Um, so we're going to have one of those shifts here. So we were just you passage now to his clouds are like heavenly cisterns, storing up water to quench earth's thirst and plump up fruit, its fruit with juice, tangy and sweet. Day three. The ground grows green with grass for cattle, with vegetation, veg, vegetable, vegetables for humans, with grapes that ferment into heart-happy wine, with olives for oil to make faces shine, with grains to be baked into bread. And here the emphasis is on agriculture. God cares for the earth in a way that cares for humanity as well. The flourishing of one doesn't have to come at the cost of the flourishing of the other. We'd do well to learn from that, wouldn't we? And I, I think our Arasha team can, can speak to how Arasha is trying to, to teach us how to do that, how it doesn't have to be one over the other. Both humans and the rest of creation can flourish at the same time. Okay, moving on. The green growth pushes into the skies, and an osprey finds a home in fir branches. Mountain meadows are ruled by mountain goats and scampering chipmunks. Day four. The sun sets like clockwork, with the moon keeping a calendar that calls us to worship. One thing I love about Antioch is how we have been moving toward, um, over the past few years, changing the way that we think about the calendar. Hallmark and the school calendar 
um, have dominated our imaginations about the way that we think about the year and how things unfold over the course of the year. But we've been trying to make the Christian calendar the stronger backbeat to the way that we think of the year and the way that we move through the seasons, Advent, Epiphany, Lent, Easter, Ascension, Pentecost, Ordinary Time. The biblical imagination is is shaped by the actions of God throughout time, and therefore the way that we experience time should also be um, shaped by um, the actions of God. And so we, we have that reflected here in Psalm 104 where the psalmist is thinking about um, the Jewish feasts and festivals and the new moon feasts and how those, um, how the passage of time is this motion through worship. So moving on. You nod, darkness descends, and the night creatures creep and prowl, uh, creep and prowl. Snarls and hoots fill the blackness, voices praying for prey. And then the sun rises and they're gone again, back to their dens and hidden holes. Oblivious to it all, headfirst humanity rushes through city streets, chasing elusive dreams till dusk. And another day is done. Day five. The volume and variety of your creatures speaks of your wisdom and creativity. How do you come up with all this, God? The vast oceans and seas are home to creatures from the sleek to the slimy, massive and minuscule. Jaws that tear and crack in that snare ships and people like toys. Okay, now we get finally to the Pentecost part of the passage. The role of the scripture within creation. The Hebrew poet uses, or the poet uses the Hebrew word ruach, which means spirit, but it also means breath. And the thing is, the poet uses both meanings at the same time, which really makes it difficult for translators. Day six, every creature eats from your hand. When your hand is full, they feast. When your hand is empty, they fast and fade. Your spirit is the breath in their lungs. Breathe your life into creation and land and beast flourish. Withhold your life and they crumble into dust. The spirit is the breath of God, the life of God. Without breath, we don't live. Without the spirit, we don't live. But with the spirit and with breath, we do live. Biblically, all life comes from God. Only God has life in and of himself. We don't. Our lives are borrowed from the life of God who shares his life with us and with all creation generously. This means that every breath you take is a participation in the life of God, in the spirit of God. It's the same with your cat or your dog, too. And I'm not being trite there. That's Psalm 104. The same God who causes it to rain on the just and the unjust alike gives and shares his life, his breath, his spirit with all of creation. Grace is built into absolutely everything 
and everyone you and I encounter, but we are so used to it that we don't even notice. So let's pause for a moment and simply breathe and experience the wonder of knowing that this is the life of God himself flowing into and out of us. When we sang earlier, it's your breath in our lungs. It's true. The psalmist says so. In my my job as a chaplain at St. Charles, I see death a lot. Um, People who breathe and then don't breathe. Uh, if, um, If we're still under Levitical law, Uh, I experience it so much that I would always be unclean. I am very familiar with death, but I am no friend to death. There's a reason St. Paul calls death the last enemy. Bereavement is brutal. And yet every single one of us here will stop breathing at one point. Atul Gawanda wrote an incredible book called um, Being Mortal, which I believe should be required reading just to be human. In it, he, he suggests that we as humans have an expiration date. We're like the bottle of milk we put in the fridge. We're already tar- starting to turn. Psalm 90, uh, which is the only psalm ascribed to, to Moses, is not happy about this. The psalmist starts beautifully talking about how eternal God is, that he's outlasts the mountains, but then he turns to us and he says, but we're, we're like grass. We, we, we grow quickly and we look green and healthy, but then we get mowed down, we turn brown and dry up and are blown away. As Bill and Ted, quoting the band Kansas said, All we are is dust in the wind, dude. And that that would be really, really hard to take if it weren't for the New Testament's promise of resurrection in Jesus. The last two chapters of the Bible offer us something, a hope that these first that the first three chapters really struggle with. So let's hear the revelation that we've heard the last couple weeks, this renewed creation, Revelation 21, 3 and 4. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among his people. And he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. 
death will be gone because we will live in and by the Spirit with our Lord. Unbroken fellowship. And creation will finally be what God intended it to be in the first place, his temple, his dwelling place. Now, one pet peeve I have with the lectionary that we used to um, pick the passages we preach from is that whoever put it together occasionally likes to skip over parts of passages that they didn't find um, to their liking. It did it in last Sunday's passage from Revelation 22, and it tried to do it for our passage today, um, but I refused to edit out parts of the Bible that I find unsavory because usually those are really important to understanding the passage. So like Revelation 22, Psalm 104 has a little part toward the end that looks forward to God getting rid of the bad people. And all of a sudden, we all start thinking about hell and angry judgment. But that's not the only way to read these passages. If all of creation is to become the holy of holies, and Sean did a great job a couple weeks ago talking about that, if um, it's to be the temple where God dwells, and if creation is to finally have its rest, its peace, its shalom, its wholeness, its final Sabbath, then there can't be any injustice or death or hostility or malice of any kind. These things have to be dealt with and disposed of for us to to have any true and lasting peace, for us to have any real joy. Because as long as these things are in the world, our joy is always incomplete. So this isn't about hell, this is about sanctuary. This is about creating a safe and holy and beautiful and joyful place free of fear and woe and harm and hatred. I mean, doesn't that make sense that we, we, we have to get rid of that in order to experience what God intended in the first place when he made this world? Now, we probably all heard people say, nature is my church, and we may have said that ourselves. When people say that, they're right. That is the goal. God God created this earth to be his temple. And there's lots of stuff in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 that that give us this uh, temple-like image for creation. It's been, it's God's intention to restore this earth so that it can truly be his, his temple um, when his kingdom comes in its fullness. All of creation is filled with the life of God, with the breath of God, the spirit of God. And Paul tells us in Colossians that it's Jesus who holds the cosmos together. Again, Every breath by every creature is given by the Spirit of God and is a participation in the Spirit of God. It's common grace. Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. They speak to us while having no speech, 
It's somewhat of a paradox, or so, um, or so it seems. The reality is that creation bears witness to the glory of God in silence, and it's our job as those that God has given mouths to to give voice to creation's praise. It's our job to give voice to creation's praise. This whole earth is bursting with the glory of God, wanting to praise, and yet it's our job to actually give voice to it. It's our job to climb the sisters and shout the glory of God that they embody. It's our job to get binoculars and go birding and give a hoot that scares away that red-shafted flicker that we just saw. It's our job to weed our gardens. It's our job to reduce our waste, to consume more thoughtfully and more joyfully. It's our job to pray our praise out under the open skies, and yes, in this room, surrounded by image of God creations. So let's set aside our middle school self-consciousness, put some red on, and go out there and let our lungs burst with our Creator's praise. So let's listen to how Psalm 104 ends. Day seven. Take joy in your creation. May it bring you pleasure and reveal your glory forever. The earth quakes and volcanoes erupt, unable to contain the abundance of your life within them. I can't hold it in either. My heart and my lips burst forth in a song that has no ending. Like the rest of your creatures, I merely want to please you, Yahweh. So wash the earth clean of those who live contrary to your design, whose lives are an ugly song that I may join your gorgeous creation in the loveliest song ever. Pray with me. Spirit, fill us like these red balloons. Fill us with your life, with your love. Lift us to the heavens. May our lives be an expression of praise back to you. For we are filled with your life and with your love. Amen.